0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at IndivisibleRadio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag Indivisible Radio or leave us a voicemail at IndivisibleRadio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show.
2: This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of
3: change. This is our penultimate show from WNYC in New York. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, public radio's live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. This is the 13th of the 14 individual shows that mark um, that period of time. And of course, This 13th week was, well, it was that kind of a week. Again, there was a special election for a congressional seat in Georgia that set off Olympic-level spin, which you probably all heard. Democrats touted the fact their candidate finished first with 48% of the vote. The Republicans breathed a sigh of relief that he hadn't won outright. And everybody, of course, is overanalyzing the election. I mean, it's not like, I'm not saying it's not important, but some of us are old enough to remember That special election back in Massachusetts when Republican Scott Brown won, and that was supposed to kill Obamacare and mean that Barack Obama would be a one-term president. You you remember all of that? Uh, Then there was the genuinely bizarre story of the aircraft carrier and the Armada that we were all told was headed towards Korea.
4: We are sending an Armada.
3: Yeah, there was just one problem, that Armada wasn't actually headed toward Korea. At all. In fact, it was steaming in the opposite direction. So the whole story turns out to be the mother of all foobars, which is actually a term that I learned from my father, who was a World War II veteran. Look it up, as I'm not going to spell it out for you. But perhaps the most remarkable story of the week was the news that Fox News has fired one of its biggest and most popular hosts, Bill O'Reilly, after reports that a number, rather large number of women, had filed complaints that he had sexually harassed them over the years. O'Reilly's paid out uh, hefty multi-million dollar settlements but continues to deny any wrongdoing. And he's blaming a vast left-wing conspiracy for his downfall. Uh, th- this is, this is a v- very much a big deal because along with figures like Roger Ailes and Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly was one of the most influential figures in the conservative media infrastructure, that ecosystem that ultimately gave us Donald Trump. And when you think about how a movement that had once touted family values and insisted over and over again that character matters, how that movement ended up embracing Donald Trump, it's worthwhile, I think, remembering that figures like Bill O'Reilly was one of the gatekeepers for a lot of conservative voters. So there's a lot going on here, but Bill O'Reilly was a fierce critic of political correctness and I think apparently came to think that he could dismiss the charges against him as just examples of PC run amok, but... Uh, Apparently, the loss of advertisers was the last straw for Fox. Remarkably, I think, though, his fall because of his treatment of women, his abuse and attitude toward women, may suggest that in America today, we have higher standards for cable television hosts than we do for the president of the United States. Meaningful pause here. But tonight, I want to focus on something that has totally haunted me since I first read it. Because I think one of the backgrounds of the last year and last year's election was what's been described as a new culture of despair in some communities, leading to what has been called deaths of despair, often linked to explo- the exploding opioid crisis. And in in many of the areas where uh, the opioid crisis has been the worst, Donald Trump did the best. We have a very special guest tonight. My guest tonight is Christopher Caldwell, who is a senior editor of the Weekly Standard. And he covered this for a, with an article called "American Carnage: The New Landscape of Opioid Addiction" in the publication of First Things, we've posted a link to it on our show page at indivisibleradio.com. Chris joins us now via Skype. Chris, welcome to Indivisible.
4: I appreciate it well, very much. Thanks for having me.
3: Now we, we want to uh, get uh, listeners involved, and and I'll you know what I want is I don't want so much commentary as I want stories. Because, you know, my experience has been that this problem has touched so many lives and so many communities. So what I want to hear from are people who have been personally affected by the opioid crisis, either, you know, because you yourself have experiences or, or someone very, very close to us. Give us a call at 844-745-TALK. That is 844-745-8255. You can also tweet us with the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. Uh, um Chris, your story, uh, and I first read it uh, last last month, is one of those stories that sticks with you for a long time because you put in context just how widespread and devastating this crisis has been. So first of all, let me just start. Why did you decide to delve into the opioid crisis, and how do you think it relates to what's happening in American politics?
4: Well, uh, I think that... This is a problem that has a I, I tend to like problems that are at at a, at a I tend to like to examine problems that are at the intersection of, um, you know, of a lot of ways of looking at things. And, and this, I think, is a this is a terrible personal tragedy. It's a uh, it's an it's a medical emergency. And I think that it, it's a it's an underappreciated political phenomenon I think you're you're quite right uh, when you said that uh, that that this problem with opioids, um, both with prescription opioids and with uh, with heroin, it has really shaped uh, the, the American way of looking at politics.
3: And this is something that that uh, President Trump has talked about. This is what he said in a in the in the uh, in the listening session that he had on opioids and drug abuse uh, a, a month ago. So this is a total epidemic, and I think it's probably almost untalked
4: about compared to the severity that we're witnessing. Uh,
3: he also described it as American carnage. Was, was that an exaggeration when the president described what's happening as carnage?
4: Well, that was at a different time. That was during right. his, um, Inauguration. his inaugural address, right? right. Um, it was an interesting thing. Um, the, the, he gave a whole list of things that he thought were going wrong with the country particularly, uh, I think with its, uh, with its small towns, but that was the one that he concluded with, was, was with, uh, with, with, was with drugs. And, um, it is, uh, if, if you want to measure it, um, numerically, it is, uh, it is beyond anything that we've, um, that we've seen with, it's beyond any problem that we've seen with drugs in anyone's lifetime. It's a, it is a, much, much more serious, uh, uh, epidemic uh, in terms of mortality, certainly than, for instance, the crack epidemic of the well, of let, the, mid, the late 1980s. Let, let Let's let's walk
3: through some of these these numbers because you you point out that that up until recently, for the vast majority of of Americans, you know you know drugs were you know an adventure that needed to be sought out um, was was not it was not touching the you know the vast majority of Americans, but that now has changed. What changed and who is most responsible for it changing?
4: Well, a lot of things have happened. I think that there's been a general climate of um, distrust, of, of, of prohibitions. Uh, um, you know, it seems like, I mean, I think that people are very, people came to really distrust um, uh, moralistic scolding about drugs over the last few um decades. So I think that's the that's certainly the backdrop to it. But, but you, I, you know, yeah. but you you but, wrote but, let, me,
3: let me ask you very specifically hmm? because you wrote something that really got me to sit up straight. You said two decades ago, a combination of libertarian attitudes about drugs and a massive corporate marketing effort combined to instruct millions of vulnerable people about the blessed relief that opioids could bring. So it, it was kind of a push-pull. You had the more laissez-faire attitude towards drugs, but then you actually had a major push through the pharmaceutical industry and the medical community to make these, these drugs ubiquitous in American society.
4: Yes, but I think they're both forms of laissez-faire. I mean, I think the... Uh um you know the the fact is that that the United States had since the early twentieth century had a a market the market in opioids was was severely restricted both by law and and by custom and 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 that was because um we had a really big problem with heroin and other opioids at the end of the of the nineteenth century and um in nineteen fourteen uh, the first of several, um, anti-drug acts was passed, which, which, which mm-hmm. included, uh, you know, jail time for, for, uh, uh, physicians who over prescribed. And that was really the, that was the mood about opioids that persisted really well into the, you know, into the post sixties generation. So even, after you had a lot of people you know smoking pot at at, at Woodstock and listening to the Beatles songs about acid and uh, when you had cocaine at Studio 54 i mean there was a big drug culture in the 60s and 70s but but heroin never really became part right. of it it was like it was on the edge there was no glamorizing heroin maybe you know one or two two songs or something like that but it was it was a taboo and and it was really in the 1990s that certain pharmaceutical companies began to say, "Let's revisit um, this; these painkillers that people used up until 1914, because they can be really useful." And they began to lobby Congress for more lenient, um, for more lenient treatment of 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 Opioids, and there were many of them. Did to start, did it start were,
3: with Oxycontin? Yeah. Uh, Oxycontin? Yeah, well, I, I,
4: no, that's, that's where we get to in the 1990s. Oxycontin, yeah. so in the 1990s, at that stage, we can pick up the story yeah. there. Um, there have been a number of um, synthetic opioids created. You know, opioids are, you have basically opiates, which come from the opium poppy which are a, a very old drug. They've been known for it's been known for thousands of years. You have heroin is a is a well you have morphine, which is the actual mm-hmm. chemical in the opium poppy. Then you have heroin, yeah. which is a kind of a distillation or a strengthening of that of that morphine. And then you have a number of chemicals that mimic those drugs that have <laughs> been created in the lab. And there were a lot of new ones and they and, and pharmaceutical companies were beginning to argue you know, some of these new drugs created in the last few years are very useful, you know. Um, and that's what we're talking about. So yeah,
3: we're 19, really, yeah, really changed change the marketplace, change the medical culture. I, w- I want to go right to the, the, the calls because then we can, yeah. we can, we can c- comment oh, yeah. on them. Let's go to Chicago right now. Uh, Marty from Chicago, you are an indivisible. Good evening. How are you?
5: Hey, I'm doing well. How about you guys?
3: Good. Tell me about your experience with opioids.
5: Yeah, well, not my experience, but my younger brother uh, passed away in his sleep. Um, after uh he was um, he heard his back at work and was prescribed uh, numerous um different types of opiates uh, apparently for a few years, but um we didn't learn about uh just how bad, you know, things were until we uh you know, until after he passed away and we found all of his prescriptions, found all of his bottles and we had a couple of doctors that was pres- prescribing him, you know, copious amounts of uh of opiates, uh Mopana, Oxycontin and just a few, like different different kinds of of those uh, of those drugs, but yeah, one day apparently just took too many and just
4: didn't wake up.
3: Marty, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Chris, is 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 is, is that is that a typical story of what's happening?
4: Yes. I well, that is the typical. I'm afraid, um, and I'm very sorry to hear it, but that is the the typical death from from opioids. It basically. Um, slows breathing down. That's one of the effects of all of these drugs and until, um, the, the, the person, um, fades away. Now this, this question of, of, of addiction, you know, um, of addiction to prescription drugs, it's a very, it's a very tricky thing. This sounds like a case where, um, where the, his brother was, um, um, was addicted to pills that he had got for an actual, you know, right. medical condition. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that and that does happen, but I think that 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 we need to be careful about how we define um, one. There's one very common storyline that you hear, which is that most addictions, um, most opiate addicts or opioid addicts, begin with prescription drugs, right. and that is true. But they don't always get them for a legitimate medical um, condition. So that leads us to a problem that we've had since the, you know, since the 90s, which is the massive overprescription of these drugs. Um,
3: You write about this, and this this I thought was really eye-opening for me, which was how you had the whole pharmaceutical industry engage in a lobbying and public relations uh, effort Kind of to restore opioids to the average middle class life, you know, uh, middle class families um, world. Chronic pain became a condition, not just a symptom. The American Pain Society led an advertising campaign calling pain the fifth vital sign after pulse, respiration, blood pressure, and temperature. And so, what they did was they de de stigmatized these drugs, and then you had a whole generation of doctors who were schooled and incentivized. To prescribe these opioids whenever they were demanded and again this, this, this happened in a relatively short period of time
4: that's right and and, and so um, this is not to belittle um, um, pain of course there are people who are in um, who are in great pain yes. but but the, but the problem with these um, with these pain foundations like the American pain Foundation which uh, which I mentioned was that there was a big investigative Piece done on them um, by the Washington Post in 2011 that, that 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 showed that that the American pain Foundation had received 90% of its funding um, from medical mm-hmm. companies um, so these were not these foundations were not consortiums of uh, victims of pain they were they were corporate public parts of a corporate public relations effort yeah. and like I say like I say that does not mean that that certain people don't Suffer serious pain, right? And
3: yeah, exactly. Let's go back to uh, the, the the phones. Let's go to Indianapolis. Uh, Robin from Indianapolis, you're an in indivisible. Good evening. How are you? Good,
1: Good evening. How are you? Good. Um, so I am a registered nurse in an ICU. We have had a uh, very large increase in the number of opioid um, addicted individuals that are in multi organ failure. And the interesting component that I have been seeing at the bedside with my fellow nurses um, in an academic setting is that the fact that we have families that are coming in completely um, void of any knowledge about what this crisis is and how it's impacting their loved one, And then we have an additional stressor that's coming on that we're having to explain to the family what has happened to their loved one and how it got to the way it is. And then we're having deficits with our nurses because they're having to deal with these stresses of these patients and their complexity and their family bringing in, you know, their small children and all these family members and who just don't understand the complex nature of what an addiction is. So it's just a really challenging time for not only the families but the caregivers.
3: No, I think this this is one of those things that is that has spread so so quickly. Robin, thanks for the call. You know, Chris, you you mentioned that the death rate for this is actually considerably higher than the death rate that we had for even crack cocaine a few years
4: ago. That that's right, and which um, I found
3: very surprising.
4: Right, that's right, and 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 you know, I I looked at some of these measures. The the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, uh, they they put out a a report. Um, called the MMWR. It's the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. And, um, you know, in December, they they, they tend to measure mortality um, uh, in terms of deaths per 100,000. And in in the early 70s, when we had a a somewhat serious heroin problem with with soldiers coming back from Vietnam Mm -hmm. addicted, and there was also a, a, a great spread of heroin into the... Into the uh, inner cities, um, uh, particularly of the Northeast. Yeah, you
3: know. Uh, let's let, let's come back into the, to those numbers because those numbers are really really striking, Chris. Uh, we have to take a short break. You are listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're talking with Chris Caldwell, who's a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. We are also taking your calls about how. You And I want to hear the stories, how you've been personally affected by this crisis. We'll get to the politics and why it's a political issue. But our number is 844-745-TALK. That is 844-745-8255.
6: Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
0: Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
7: This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
3: This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. I'm here with Christopher Caldwell, a senior editor at the Weekly Standard, who has written a really genuinely remarkable story about America's opioid crisis for first things. We posted a link to the article on our show page at indivisibleradio.com. I strongly recommend it. Christopher, right before the break, we're going through the numbers that the the death rate in this crisis really dwarfs what we saw during the first heroin crisis and in the crack cocaine. Just run through the numbers right. quickly. So let's name yeah. those.
4: So they yeah. tend to get measured in terms of deaths per hundred thousand. In the early seventies, when you had a heroin crisis with soldiers coming back from Vietnam, it was one point five per hundred thousand. During the, the the crack epidemic, it was up to sort of two per hundred thousand. This epidemic is at Ten deaths per hundred thousand, and there are individual states uh, which are a multiple of that, and there are two in particular that are a problem. New Hampshire is uh, in the last year or two has been at thirty deaths per one hundred thousand, and West Virginia has for some time now been at forty deaths per one hundred thousand
3: A lot of this has to do with you, 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 you note that sometimes when we say heroin, we increasingly mean fentanyl and in the in the various various forms of that. And when we're talking about fentanyl is it's 50 times as strong as street heroin. I mean there is some right. really deadly stuff out there.
4: Right. Um now fentanyl is one of these um it, it's it's one of these opioids as opposed to opiates and opioid is an artificial um opiate and it was invented in um in the late 1950s or in 1960 and it it um uh, it's used mostly for end of life care. Uh, basically, there are there are transdermal patches that get made of fentanyl. It's apparently a fairly easy opioid to manufacture in a, in a lab, and a lot of it is made um, in China. Um, and uh, it so comes people, to the United. People steal sorry.
3: these things, and then the, the addicts suck on them. Is that That's what right. happens?
4: They suck or chew on them. That is a really really dangerous thing to do. To um, with a with a fentanyl. Um, patch, but a, a more dangerous source of this problem is the um, is the fentanyl that gets um, either gets mailed in from China or is, is smuggled up from from mexico and I, I gather that most fentanyl, what we call basic fentanyl, is about fifty times mm-hmm. as strong as, um, as as heroin, and the problem is not that you just substitute one for the other. the dealers. Fentanyl's cheaper, and the dealers sort of will try and cut it so that it doesn't kill. They don't want to kill their customers. So they try and cut it by a factor of 50, but that turns out to be a very hard thing to do. It's tough to get it, you know, like sort of mixed in to the, to the whole mixture so that, that it's got an even quantity of drug in it. So the f- fentanyl might get whipped in right, like, the, like the fudge swirl in a chocolate swirl thing. And so, if you get something without a stripe in it, it doesn't get you high. But if you get something that's all stripe, it will kill you
3: it, very, very, very quickly. And, and, you, and you point out that a lot of addicts really like this stuff. This is what they look for. I mean, you, you have a you have a line in your story that that at least around Rhode Island, you know, that the dealers will describe their heroin as the fire. The way chefs describe their ribs is so tender they'll fall off the bone. That a lot of addicts look for the most intense dangerous deadly drug
4: even though they know
3: that it's deadly and it's dangerous
4: i know and i was told that uh, that was one of the things that really shocked me um, was to talk to some of these people and find they preferred fentanyl it's got a, it's got a, it, it really has a kick on it it doesn't last quite so long but there are some people who like it
3: wow let's go back to the phones let's go back to uh let's go to philadelphia uh mark from philadelphia you aren't indivisible good evening how are you
2: Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Um, Yeah, it's ironic when um, I turned on the the radio when I was driving home, less than 40 minutes before I turned on the radio, I got a message from some of my coworkers that one of our friends had passed away. From this? And that was tonight.
3: (laughs) Do you have any idea and, what happened? Uh,
2: do, you have any, do you have any idea what happened? Well, you know, it's it's sketchy. The details aren't out. Everyone's still mm-hmm. in shock. Um, but I've been thinking about this whole thing. I'm a teacher as well. as a, I bartend a couple nights a week, and this was one of our friends from the bar. He, he was probably 26 or 27. And I've been just thinking about it in terms of it's happening more and more. Um, a good friend of mine, his daughter, um, a number of years ago, about... 13 or 14 years ago, started taking his pain pills that he had been prescribed for a shoulder injury, and here we are 13 years later, she's been in rehab like 27 times, and now this kid that I used to work with is gone, and it's just, you know, it doesn't seem that we're discussing it as a national uh, epidemic like it is, and it transcends uh, demographics because I'm in a big urban city. Um, you know, we voted overwhelmingly for Hillary. And then you get these enclaves in rural America that, you know, supported Trump. And it just transcends, it seems, every demographic. And it doesn't seem like we're talking enough about figuring it out.
3: Well, that's why we're talking about it tonight, Mark. Thanks for the call. Um, and sorry for, for your for your loss. In terms of the demographics of this, uh, you know, occasionally I read people saying, well, the only reason that we are, in fact, are talking about it is because it is it is now impacting the white middle class, the working class. Where was this concern when it was focused on, you know, the 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 central city? So give me your give me your take on this, because the demographics do appear to be different in terms of, of of its effect.
4: Well, in, you know, in a way, that these people do have a point. I mean, the they, the um we we should have worried about it more when it was a matter of um of the inner city, um. But uh, it's also true that it's just a larger problem now. The uh the the inner city problem hasn't gone away. It's just been sort of like submerged in this larger problem. A lot of people um, look at this and say, "Oh, this is a problem with um you know rural white." America, And so now you're worried about it because it's rural white yes, America. Right. Um, well, those are two groups that had not previously been affected by it, it very much, but they're not disproportionately affected. Now, this epidemic, it's an extraordinary thing, sort of hits is hitting all eth- yeah. ethnic, social, geographic groups about the same. I mean, I have the the numbers from from Rhode Island, you know, um, Rhode Island is 85% white, 9% Hispanic, and 5% black. The uh, emergency room admissions um, uh, for these opiate overdoses are 82% white, 9% Hispanic, 6% black. Now, there are more men than women in this group. That's one way in which it differs from the population at large. But it pretty much is hitting everybody.
3: Yeah, we have a listener on Twitter who just wrote, my mother died as a result of opioid addiction. Not not what one connects with 70-year-old Jewish mothers. It is everywhere. Let's go to the, the uh, calls. Let's go to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Charles from Little Rock. You're on Indivisible. Good evening.
5: Hello. Thank you for
3: having me. Sure. Tell me your experience. Yeah.
5: Um, yes, I was actually a heroin addict myself. Um, it began, uh, let's see, about four or five, six years ago, I was in an accident where I was hit by a tow truck. I was on a motorcycle, and, um, I it started out very simply just me getting prescribed hydrocodones. I went through physical therapy, and I seemed to be getting better. And then when it was time for me to reenter the workforce, there was just a lot of pain in my upper shoulders, and I couldn't get over it and I talked to my doctors, and it came down to two options. Basically, I could get back on hydrocodones and, you know, just kind of deal with it, and hopefully it would go away as I got older or, you know, work through it. Or, basically, I would get steroid shots, and... You know, people that know about that, maybe I, I guess I made the wrong decision, but to me, steroid shots sounded so scary. You know what I mean? Whereas with hydrocodones, I just took them and I took, I'd wake up, I took one and I was able to get through my day. And you know what I mean? And it started out simply. And then it got to where, you know, within two years, I was. Shooting up and how did that?
3: How actually, did how did that happen? Tell me, Charles how how did it happen? How did you go from the prescription um, drug to man, heroin? The,
5: well, uh, obviously, as you continue, I was young. I was. Twenty-three uh, when it first started, and that was a big thing. With you know, my doctor was, of course, hesitant. I will say on getting me in, on them in the first place, right. but originally I wasn't. You know, I was so injured that there was no thought of it. It was just, of course, right. I was going to be on some kind of pain medicine. But then after that, it, uh, it got to where I started to need more. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I was taking ten milligrams when I woke up and ten milligrams when I went to sleep,
3: you and needed more and more and I, more.
5: I thought I needed more, but I always considered it was due to my age. My doctor didn't want to give me more. And I, you know, they'd give me a month's supply, and so quite frankly, I would I would take one and a half or two of them as I needed, and I would start to run out. And um, it was maybe eight months into about a year and a half after my wreck, uh, eight months mm-hmm. after the year mark, if you will, uh, the year mark being when I could get right. out of bed and I was able to reenter the workforce. Um, I got sick, and I actually thought it was the flu. I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I obviously was talking to a family friend. I needed to go to work, and I didn't know what to do. And he, he told me to come to his house, and he gave me um, uh, an oxycodone. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to be too specific. Right, you know. I, I don't it. want to give people how-tos. Yeah. Um, but it kind of started with that. I came over, and I was going to take it, and he told me not to do that, that I, I needed to go ahead and crush it up and And you know, snort it, and so I did, and I was instantly better, you know within ten minutes, I just nothing it was like the the flu was gone, and, and of course, at that moment, I realized that I was physically dependent, and I had no idea I was going to work. I thought addicts were people who you see on the streets, you know what I mean that yep. that can't work, they can't do anything; they're dirty, and so and from that I moment no on idea. so from
3: that moment on, you were a heroin addict.
5: Basically, you know, I didn't start using heroin for another probably two years after that. But um, and for a long time, I, basically, I was addicted to oxyto thirty milligrams. That's what I would do. That's all I did. I knew Fresh someone up. who got just an ungodly amount of them, and you know, that's that's how I got me onto it. And eventually, that ran ran out. He was doing something that he probably shouldn't have been doing, or he should not have been doing. He got caught, and I had to go to something else. Charles and I moved on to
3: what I knew Charles congratulations on uh, on staying clean you know Christopher you describe in your article this the, the process though that you know when, when people get that the, the the rush or the you know the feeling of well-being that they get from from these uh, these opioids from from heroin the problem is is that you constantly need more and more and more to get back to that place is
4: right that and, pr- yes and 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 tolerance uh, growing tolerance is a huge problem with, um, with, with heroin and, and, and other opioids. And this story that, that Charles just told is, is absolutely classic. And, um, uh, the problem with these drugs is that, you know, a a given dose doesn't do the same. It doesn't provide the same relief for long and, and to certain people and certain people need to keep Keep going up to get the same relief, and if you've got re- real pain, you'll do it. And then you reach a point where the withdrawal becomes the, the 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 pain that you need the relief from. And that was what what happened to Charles when his friend chopped up the oxycodone for him. But but there's another stage that he didn't really get into, and I'm, I'm I can only guess at his life that seemed to interest you. And that is how do you go from the prescription drugs right. to the heroin. And, and, and the answer to that is that the prescription drugs are available on the street, but they're really expensive. And you reach the point where you can't afford them. And it's not like you can say, well, it's worth it. Uh, you know, I, I'll pay a little more for the oxycodone. But you get to a point where you are, you are vomiting and getting diarrhea and, doing, and having yeah. all the unspeakable symptoms of withdrawal that we were talking about. And you need something fast and cheap. And that's heroin. So heroin is cheaper
3: than the, than the, than, than the prescription
4: drugs. A lot cheaper. Yeah.
3: Wow. Let's go back to the phones again. uh, Let's go to Philadelphia. Leah from Philadelphia. You're on Indivisible. Good evening.
7: Good evening. Um, My sister passed in 2015. Um, They found the toxicology report came back with sentinel in her system. She was not a drug user. She unfortunately was with the wrong people. Um, We do not know how it was ingested or how she Took it because once um, it went systemic, and it was we were unable to find out whether it was snorted or it was slipped to her or it was injected or there. You know, anyhow, my my point is is that I feel like we're really um, we're I don't want to use the word prosecuting, but like we're really um, holding firm with the medical. Um, industry and and saying, you know, doctors have to stop prescribing these opioids and this and that. But really, there's a much bigger problem here. There are people that are buying pills on the streets. They don't know what they're taking because they're laced. Now we have fentanyl. Fentanyl is out there and people don't know what they're taking. No matter how this addiction has flown off with, you know, and and taken flight, now we have to protect people with finding out, like, I am sorry, I'm very worked up because well, sure. it's a very sensitive subject, but um, there are people that are making these drugs now, and it's not coming from the pharmacies.
3: And some of it is coming a lot worse, yeah, and some of it's worse than the fentanyl, the, the, the carfentanyl, which is basically what, it's, a, it's an animal tranquilizer that is 10,000 times as powerful as morphine, and you can certainly imagine how that would contribute rather dramatically to the uptick in uh, deaths, Christopher.
4: Yeah, well I, I think Leah is really she raises an important point here that um and and I think that the people who write about this this story need to need to think about it. It's very satisfying to us in a political way to identify, you know, the the, the, the people who make OxyContin, like Purdue Pharma, mm-hmm. um as uh, uh, as the bad guys, it's the, you know it's and and it's sort of like it gives you a sort of a, a populist thrill of fighting on the side of of righteousness. Right. And I don't want to minimize what they've done. They've they've really gone uh, you know they've really spent a lot of money trying to influence our political system so that they can make billions of dollars selling these drugs that, although they have um, some excellent uh, pain killing properties, have killed a lot of people. Okay, uh, so but but. But we do often lose sight of the fact that there still is a group of criminal syndicates pushing drugs in the you know in the, in the country. That's why you know if anyone I, there's a very good book on on that kind of gives a holistic picture of of you know both drugs and and uh, both prescription drugs and and street drugs, which is Sam Quinones' book, um, uh, Dreamland. Uh, that gives mm-hmm. a very good uh, sort of like overview of the of, of both dimensions of the problem. But yeah, yeah, but I think Leah is right. We are reluctant to sort of like actually fight, you know, drugs on the streets, which is what it will take to 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 stop a lot of these, um, you know, Tragedies from happening. Well,
3: that's what I want to do when we come back, because there, there's two things people are probably wondering, you know, you know what does this have to do with the first hundred days of the Trump administration? I want to talk about the politics. And I also want to talk about the, the much more difficult question is, what do we do with this? How do, how do we put this genie back, back in the bottle? And also, is this one issue? And, you know, I, one of the things I was thinking about when... We were uh, talking about doing this. Was is this one of the issues that actually crosses over the lines? Is this is, is this one of those those issues that there is not a right and a left, or is this already morphing into a a political issue? Uh, you know, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is already basically suggesting that somehow he's equating the opioid crisis with 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 marijuana. Do you have any quick reaction to that?
4: Um. Yeah, I you know I, I I quickly I believe that there is no right and left on this largely because of the demographic issue we talked about. It's in all places, all classes, all groups. Okay,
3: so. we have to take another break, and we're going to uh, talk about that a little bit more. You are listening to Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about America. In a time of change, I'm Charlie Sykes, and we're talking with Christopher Caldwell. We're taking your calls about how you've been affected by the opioid crisis. We'll take more of your calls right after this break. Please stay with us.
6: Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is
8: 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255.
3: This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. We're talking with Weekly Standard Senior Editor Christopher Caldwell. We're taking your calls about how you've been affected by the opioid crisis. Uh, Christopher, right before the break, I, I mentioned this comment um, by Jeff Sessions. And I'm, I, I'm agreeing with you, and I certainly want to agree with you, that uh, this is one of those issues that it crosses the ideological lines. But I want to play this clip and, again, talk about this. So this is Jeff Sessions. We have too much of a tolerance for drug use psychologically, politically, morally. We need to say, as Nancy Reagan said, just say no, don't do it. There's no excuse for this. It's not recreational. I reject the idea that we're going to be better placed if we have more marijuana and you can just go down to the corner the grocery
8: store and get it. Give me a break. I'm astonished to hear <laughs> people suggest we can
3: solve our heroin crisis. Have you heard this? By having more marijuana. Well, how stupid is that? Oh, give me a break. Christopher Caldwell, your, your thoughts.
4: Well, that struck me as more of a sort of like uh, the kind of thing a guy would say. So sort of like rocking on the front porch than in a <laughs> sort of policy uh, uh, context. There's a lot of that but going on lately. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you, um, you know, but there's, there's, there's a there's a kernel of uh, kernel in there that should be listened to. There is a general... Um, there is a general attitude that has arisen, let's say in the last half a century that, that there's something ridiculous or preposterous about, about, um, uh, about regulating drugs. Drugs are fun and, and we're all adults here and we all, we all know how much we can take and, and they're actually much more pernicious than that. And I, and I think that, that, that certainly alcoholics have always understood this and I, and there's a sentence in, um, the Blue Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I think is really beautiful, which is this: Remember, we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful, and a lot of these drugs are this way. Now, um, with marijuana, um, marijuana does not have a lot of the addictive properties that uh, that that heroin and alcohol have for some people, um, but. I, I do think that, that 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 we don't want to exonerate uh, the the tendency to generally liberalize drug laws at the same time. Yeah. So,
3: you you also yeah. have a very interesting line in, in your article. You say uh, difficult though recovery from addiction has always been. It has always been. It, it has always had this on its side. It is a rigorously truth focused and euphemism free endeavor something that is increasingly rare in our era of weasel words but you're pointing out that that the culture of addiction treatment seems to be losing touch with that kind of you know blunt candor and you say that it's marked by an extraordinary level of political correctness what do you mean
4: yeah you know i wouldn't say the culture of addiction tr- maybe the culture of addiction treatment yeah, all that, right? That's right but i mean i think that most addicts most addicts get cured in the company of other addicts um, you know, the classic, you know, uh, uh, way is through 12-step programs, but there are other programs. And that is, a, that is a culture, and I don't know it intimately, so and I don't know what, what, you know, what they are like. I do think that the way politicians tend to talk about this is very euphemistic and politically correct. I think that when you have actually a bunch of people who have this problem— and are trying to get a get to grip uh, to come to grips with it they tend to talk really bluntly and they 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 will you know they they will not mince words.
3: Yeah, you you point out that yeah. we're, we're no longer supposed to say drug abuse. You're supposed to say substance use disorder. Right. Uh, you're not supposed yeah. to say that an addict's urine sample is clean. You're supposed to say that you know because that's a uh, you know a term that wounds. It's better yeah. to say negative drug test. Binge drinking yeah. is out. Heavy alcohol use is what you're supposed to say. Um, all of these euphemisms seem to be somewhat disconnected with the really the the, the gravity and the tragedy yeah. of of what we are dealing with. Let's let's go back to the. Uh, the phones. Let's go to uh, Tallahassee, Florida. Sam, you are on Indivisible. Good evening.
9: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I just wanted to talk about my experience. I'm currently addicted to opiates. Um, I'm from a upper middle class, middle class family. Both my parents are lawyers. I, it's not something that I ever thought I would end up. And it's not so, even when I started taking opiates, you know, I didn't. I just wish someone had been there to tell me. Like, the first time I took opiates, I didn't enjoy it. But I kept taking them because I didn't realize that I was building an addiction. That I, you know, I I went for two years probably before I got addicted, you know. And I was just talking to a kid the other night who was talking about how much he loves Oxy's talking about Percocet. I was trying to tell him my story, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's fine. And I, I did, I love them too. But but every time you take it, you're training yourself that that's an option. And that, that, you know, it's, I'm, and, and now, you know, I've probably performed rescue breathing on friends of mine who have overdosed maybe ten times. 10 times, but most recently last night, um, And,
4: yeah, you know, I started
9: out taking my grandmother's pills and, you know, I just never would have, never would have known.
3: So, Samuel, you've performed CPR on a friend at least like 10 times, including you performed CPR just the other night?
9: Uh, yeah, last night.
3: Wouldn't that be enough to scare you straight?
9: Um, in my case, um... I'm sort of maintaining my addiction um and every time that i and I, I I love to stop i attempt- i try to regularly, and every time i do i um when I end up in withdrawals, I end up going back to worse stuff and shooting up. That's not something that I do anymore because it's just so physically destructive, but <clears throat> you know when I do try. It's like it's almost like there's a whiplash
3: effect no. where
9: the farther I get the harder it pulls me back.
3: Samuel, how do you think this is going to end for you?
9: I I think that I'm going to be dealing with it for the rest of my life. Um I I I strongly believe that I will one day get clean. Um I just don't don't know when it's going to be. Christopher, and I, you know yeah.
3: that's Christopher what 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 is going to have to happen for Samuel from Tallahassee what is going to have to happen for him to get clean
4: well that's you know that's that's up to to Sam but I I you know I don't think that when you talk about being scared straight I don't know that anyone ever gets scared mm-hmm. straight as far as I can tell and I don't mean to put you know words in Sam's head I think that Sam is scared of this I think Sam has a healthy fear of this but he's an addict and um and there are people too Talk to, um, um, I. But I. I he yeah. seems Sam seems to be talking quite rationally about about all of these things. I, I. It's a it's a tough. This is a tough it, thing. It, it is. Sa- to, Samuel, talk to
3: people. Samuel, thanks for the call. I guess this is where I come down yeah. to it. I read I read these stories. I read the statistics, and I go. But what do we do about it? What What is yeah. the public policy that's going to change it? Because I think your answer was exactly on point. Frankly, it's yeah. it's it's not something the federal government's going to be able to do. or law enforcement is going to be up to Samuel at some point, right?
4: And, yeah, well, and- I, yeah, I I think that I think that in general these these the the enforcement is a state responsibility, just as a as a as a constitutional matter. But I mean, if you look if you listen to Samuel and you listen to the stuff that he's been through, I think that most people when they look at these problems, I mean, you know, this is the the, the addiction is really punishment enough for a yeah. lot of people and he, you and, know he what I mean?
3: and he is not under any illusions he's not he's not That's in right. denial let's go to uh, mystic connecticut chris from a mystic you are on indivisible good evening uh,
8: hello. Thank, oh hello thank you for taking my call and sure. thank you for all the who called in I'm, sure. I'm really happy to hear about this topic being talked about as i drive home from work um i practice primary care in mystic connecticut i've been seeing this for a long time uh professionally personally friends family It's a very unfortunate situation. You know, I just have a quick question about, well, one thing I wanted to bring up was just, you know, making sure that we understand the difference between dependency and addiction, that people could become dependent on pain medicine if they have a surgery. You know, they may feel a little crummy when they get off the medication, but, you know, they don't crave the medication. So some people can take medication safely. You know, addiction is really that obsessive compulsive component where people will do something and then they they can't stop thinking about it. Um one of the big pushes has been the buprenorphine, uh, Suboxone, Subutex, mm-hmm. you know, medication-assisted mm-hmm. therapy, uh, where they find if people don't, you know, they, they they get off these medications, and the relapse rates are like 90% within one year unless they go under some sort of medication-assisted therapy. So just uh, some things that I was thinking about that I come into contact with, and I just wanted to hear yeah,
3: no, that's, about it. Yeah, no, that is interesting. So there's a distinction between dependency and, and addiction. Did you encounter that in your research, Christopher?
4: Um, I'm not sure in the same terms, but I accept it. I think the doctor, you know, the, first, mm-hmm. the doctor knows more about it than I do, and second, it, it, it sounds like a reasonable um, distinction. I mean, the, 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 he's right that um, buprenorphine and, and suboxone are kind of the cutting edge of what people are doing um, uh, in treatment nowadays. They are, uh, um, I guess they're called like a semi-opioid or so they, they, they don't engage the opioid receptors all the way in the way that say methadone um, did. But it, it, it's a way of of, um, of, of replacing this, this craving mm-hmm. with a much less dangerous uh, drug. And I think that a lot of people who 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 practice this kind of treatment are very enthusiastic about it.
3: Yeah, we, we have a lot of people in the medical community calling in. Uh, Megan from Washington D.C., you are an indivisible. Good evening, Megan.
6: Hi. Thanks so much for taking my call.
3: I understand you're a, volu- a volunteer paramedic.
6: I am. Yes, I'm a volunteer okay. paramedic. Um, so I see a lot of this uh, people overdosing, and um, I've had family members battling addiction and family members who have passed away from. Uh, from overdoses. But one thing that really stuck out in my mind was I had a shift in the emergency department and two brothers came in and they first came in with some sort of nonspecific back pain or something like that. Um, And very quickly they sort of, uh, they revealed to their providers that they were addicts and that they were out of their drugs and they were looking for more. Um, And I was very interested to see how the emergency department would react, whether they would sort of give them the drugs that they were looking for um and so they put them in folding chairs and came back a few minutes later with you know the the drugs that they they wanted and uh, sort of sent them on their way they gave them
8: okay.
6: that, that sort of appalled me at first because i was like you know how could you possibly think that it's good to give these known addicts the drugs that they're addicted to instead of sort of helping them but um in the moment the emergency department was so busy that they were they thought they were doing the right thing by not you know, holding up two beds and giving unnecessary tests to these people who didn't really have back pain or, you know, they didn't want to give them MRIs or x-rays or whatever they, you know, they would have needed if they were complaining of pain. And so I sort of initially was appalled, but couldn't really think of a better solution um, for the emergency department in that acute Hmm. moment. So I was just sort of curious to see how to, an opinion about
3: that. Megan, what an interesting story! You know, Christopher, you you describe this uh, phenomenon in your article: people who go into the emergency rooms claiming, you know, to have toothaches or other exactly. forms of, accru- and and of course because there's no diagnosis other than the claim of the individual, it often works until the emergency room staff sort of, you know, is on the red,
4: red flagging them is the word is the word for that. And, and so you become kind of persona non grata in a, um, in an emergency room, you know, I mean, I, I talk to this a lot with people in, in Maine, I mean, heaven forbid that you should ever, you know, I mean, it, uh, some of these places are very far from hospitals, you know, I mean, if you if you are red flagged in some emergency room, and you have a real emergency, it's bad. But no, I've heard of, I've heard of people going in; they claim toothaches. I've heard of people having teeth removed yeah. that they didn't need to be removed just to get the prescription. So,
3: what, so what is the answer? Megan was saying, well, "What was the right?" She was appalled, but so what? What is the right answer?
4: An answer? I mean, yeah. we're talking—we're talking about a, a problem that's killing more than fifty thousand Americans a year. That's a and and is rising. Um, uh, this is a. This is a a, a, a a widespread crisis. So saying it? no though uh, would be would counts?
3: not be a terrible idea though, right?
4: It would not be a terrible idea, but most people are too far along for that. I mean, at the early stages, it, of course, it's the best idea. Um, but it's not. I mean, to, 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 to someone like to someone like Sam, you know, who we talked to yeah. a little earlier. I mean, he's pretty far along for that. Maybe I mean Sam would like to say no. Yeah. he's finding it hard to say no. Uh,
3: let's go to uh, let's go to uh, Long Island. Craig from Long Island, you're on Indivisible.
0: Hey, thanks so much for taking my call. Sure. It's such an important issue, and uh, it's wonderful to hear your guest uh, addressing this. He's he's very enlightened, and uh, you bring up so many good points. Uh, we are in the midst of a national epidemic. Uh, I practice in the field of pain management. I'm actually from New York City, um, and. I, pract- I started practicing 2025 20, years ago. Uh, it was at a time when the idea uh, was being promulgated that these medications could and should be used more liberally in patients with chronic pain. Um, they had been... Um, we, we were on something of a... Uh, We were very concerned over epidemics that drug epidemics had occurred in the 1970s and 80s, and I think there was a a real holdback of the use of these medications. In the 1990s, that started liberalizing. You guys talked about this chronology, um, but the the data has not held up. Over the last 20 years, we've really not done um, a very good job in medicine. Um, in, in treating pain, uh, and in treating pain specifically with the use of, of high-potency narcotic opiate medications. Um, you know, the, the government's gotten involved because there's a national epidemic. There's a lot of diversion. There's a lot of abuse and misuse, and that's all true. But even in circles where the medications are being used properly and medicinally by patients, uh, the, the literature does not support the efficacy of these medications. Many, most of these patients wind up with as much pain as they ever had taking large doses of these medications, and they're really supporting a dependency. Uh, And if you talk to these people, they'll tell you, they still have tremendous amounts of pain, um, but they show up every month for their prescription. Uh, so what is you know, the solution? I, I wanna, what, is, 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 is
3: the solution the medical community then policing itself or legis- is there a legislative answer? Because any legislation will then, in, you know, will inject the government in between the patient and the doctor. What What is the answer, Christopher?
4: Uh, I think that the I'm sorry, any any leg- that's true. I mean, but um, I mean, I think the legislation on heroin uh, injects itself between the, the um, patient and the doctor. That's just what drug legislation is. And, um, um I, 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 I'm very interested in what the doctor says yeah. because I've heard, I spoke to a number of doctors for this piece and some of them, um, said, uh, yes, this is good pain medicine. And others said, this has no use for my pain patients. You're not, they're not, you're not killing their pain. You're just giving them something to distract them from pain. And I, I'm not being a doctor myself. I don't, I really don't know what to think about that.
3: Yeah, I, this is this is where it gets really, really tricky. Okay, here's the, here's the we're running out of time. Unfortunately, we could do we could do this for three hours. Yeah. What does this have to do with the presidential election? Why were the counties where this was the worst problem? Why did Donald Trump do so well? What what is the connection there?
4: I think that the uh, you know talk to, listen to the people who called tonight. They said you know it's good to have someone talking about this. People didn't care. These I mean this was happening you know in. You know across the country the in in parts of the country the people were no one cared about it, no one talked about it now you have you know you have this great big you know government that's sort of like uh it, it's very intrusive it's very curious about what's going on in all sorts of seemingly irrelevant parts of people's lives and now you've got people dying on the streets, kids dying in small towns and no one no one pays any attention i I think that that's that's it that's that's why it became. A a political
3: thing. We have to leave it there. Thank you for everyone for sharing your stories with us and thanks to Christopher Caldwell for being my guest. Christopher Caldwell, senior editor at the Weekly Standard. You can read his article American Carnage at IndivisibleRadio.com Chris, thanks so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, That's all for tonight on Indivisible. Tomorrow night host Kerry Miller of Minnesota Public Radio looks at disappearing jobs in middle America and how They've changed the face of American politics. Until then, you can keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com, where you can leave us a comment or a voicemail at any time. You can also tweet using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. I'm Charlie Sykes. See you next week.
6: Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation.
8: If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.